Well, good morning. Is this on? Wonderful. No, I, uh, I know today for so many of you, because uh, Amy's a dear now sister-in-law to me, uh, that's a tough announcement to hear. And so don't worry, my sermon's only 60 minutes. You only have to wait that long till you can swarm her with hugs and encouragement and prayer. Um, you know, if it wasn't a big enough insecurity for me, standing beside Rod as he's making that announcement about changing my diaper, <laughs> he had to go and announce where the emergency exits were so that people could leave early during my sermon. <laughs> great, great. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a great irony for me, actually, preaching to you today, uh, because for some reason, the, the memories that first come to mind when I think of this church are, are these images of me throwing tantrums during our family car rides to Central Heights on Sunday? Or, or actually, as I remember calling it, Mommy and Daddy's Stupid Church. I know. Don't worry, don't worry. My opinions have since changed. But, but these memories are important to me because as, as I remember it, we, we pull up in our seven-passenger van which for some reason was too small for me because my sister's knee kept bumping against mine. And, and it was as if every time that we would pull up in the parking lot, uh, every car or every vehicle beside us seemed like it had the capacity to hold 30. And so my complaining worsened. And, and you know, it, it almost ruined my calling to ministry because I started longing to become a farmer. Then, at least in my um, small understanding, I thought that I could at least take advantage of the perks of driving a big and spacious tractor all by myself to church. <laughs> I, you know, I want to suggest to us that those memories are important for us as we look into Isaiah 31 this morning, too. Because it was in the parking lot of Central Heights Church that I first stumbled upon this crucial exegetical truth. That not all ways of getting from here to there are equal. So as we drive into our text this morning in Isaiah 31, we need to be careful about what vehicle we're sitting in. Because if we're going to make sense of the ancient text we are studying... We probably, should, uh, we probably should be prepared to strap on 8th century BC sandals before we become drivers of bright, shiny Teslas. In other words, without establishing a historical context of Isaiah 31, we run the risk of doing a lot of eisegesis, of reading ourselves and our presuppositions into the text, instead of doing exegesis, a focused study and explanation of the text. We need to approach every chapter of our Bibles with the expectation that it will imp impact us, but we also need to be cautious so as not to extract beyond our reach. Herein lies the basic tenet of historical criticism. A text cannot mean to us what it did not mean to its first hearers, or as I put it, not all modes of transportation are equal. With that in mind, if you haven't already, would you start your engines or better yet, would you bend down with me and do up your sandals? Let's go for a walk together, shall we? If you remember with me back to 1 Kings chapter 11 and 12, uh, after King Solomon dies, the kingdom of Israel divides. 
And in 931 BC, King Solomon is buried. In 930 BC, uh, his son Rehoboam is called to take the throne. And it's during that appointment process of Rehoboam that the people of Israel come to him pleading for him to remove or loosen up at, at the very least some of the taxes that King Solomon had placed on the people to pay for all his glorious infrastructure. They just want Rehoboam to loosen up the tolls on the Portman Bridge. But Rehoboam, young and impetuous like King John behind me, listens to the hissing of his foolish advisors. And instead of relaxing the tax, he promises to punish them even harder. As you might imagine, well, the tribes of Israel are furious. Ten of them leave, and the kingdom splits in two. The tribes of Judah, Benjamin, and most scholars think Levi as well, they become uh, the southern kingdom of Judah, and they crown Rehoboam their king. While the rest of the ten tribes become the northern kingdom of Israel and appoint Jeroboam as king. Now, now Isaiah, Isaiah serves as a prophet uh, for the kingdom of Judah, after the division of north into south. He decides, in other words, to take his talents down to South Beach. But the scene in the south is a lot less spectacular than LeBron James's tenor with the Miami Heat. There's some civil war, a lot of idolatry, and eventually, as Isaiah 7, 7-9 prophesies, the ten northern tribes get carted off into the Assyrian Empire. They get deported. Or in language that our modern world understands, they got trumped. <laughs> by the time we reach our text in Isaiah 31, the kingdom of Judah is being ruled by King Hezekiah. It's, it's about 30 or so years after Assyria uh, captures the northern kingdom of Israel. But here's the problem. Like the ten northern tribes of Israel uh, before him, Hezekiah and the kingdom of Judah are facing the immediate danger of being swallowed up by mighty Assyria. Dominant Assyria. T to make matters worse, Hezekiah's father who ruled before him, King Ahaz, he, he got scared during his reign because the northern kings and their allies, Syria, were threatening his children, and so he reaches out to Assyria for help. Assyria, in turn, crushes the northern kingdom and their allies. But by 722 BC, most of the known world is being conquered too. And guess which nation is next on their list? The kingdom of Judah. In fact, you know, it might take a few months for the new king of Assyria to politically solidify himself as the next leader of that nation. But when he's finished campaigning, he'll be on his way to decorate his new Oval Office with servants of Judah. Facing Assyria is inevitable, and Hezekiah knows this. You know, most of you might be sitting uh, here in, in your seats on the verge of shrugging your shoulders and saying, okay, so no big deal, Hezekiah. Just get out the nukes! You know, or if that doesn't work, let's just revert back to the classic slingshot and smooth stone strategy. That'll teach them. Well, in reality, the situation of Isaiah 31 is about as dangerous as the devastating turmoil we're seeing in Aleppo. 
If he doesn't let Assyria just bully him into servanthood, he's most likely going to be digging through the rubble of Jerusalem to find his children. Hezekiah is in a proper Assyrian crisis. So what are the alternatives? Well, we know from the rest of Isaiah, namely chapters 28, 30, and 39, that Egypt and Babylon are offering Judah an alliance. They're the other definitive powers of the time, and they know that aligning with the kingdom of Judah at least gives them a shot at facing Assyria on equal ground. So both Egypt and Babylon are sending ambassadors. They've sent ambassadors to Hezekiah, and they're offering him horses, chariots, and horsemen. Hezekiah, much like his father before him, as one scholar puts it, finds the lure of politics and militarism too strong and raised the standard of rebellion. Hezekiah signs an alliance with Egypt, and it's on this decision that Isaiah 31 provides us with commentary. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me there to Isaiah chapter 31? If you're reading with the Pew Bible, it's on page 592. And this is God's word. So let's have ears to hear it accordingly. Isaiah 31, verse 1. <clears throat> Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. If you don't already know, we're just going to pause here. If you don't already know, when a prophet or anyone for that matter begins their message to you with the word woe, it's probably not a good sign. But, but just to be clear, this isn't the same word we use in English, the same sounding word we use in English to provide exclamation. Whoa, bro! Not at all. Generally, the woe we see here is used to communicate something threatening. I always imagine it this way. It's equivalent to those looks my mom used to give me when I was horsing around in the balcony of Central Heights. This look, that look always meant, Caleb, Caleb, you're in trouble. Sorry, mom. I am in trouble. <laughs> leaving Cleve, leaving Cleve, leaving Cleve. Likewise, uh, in Isaiah here, this woe is Isaiah's way of saying, Judah, you're in trouble. Isaiah is expressing extreme distress at the situation of Jerusalem. But his distress isn't a reaction to their dire situation or context. Catch this. Don't miss it. It's a reaction to the response that God's people have made in their predicament. Judah, you're in trouble because you go down to Egypt. You rely on horses. You trust in chariots. You do not look to your God for help. You do not consult the Lord for instruction. Those are all verbs highlighting the actions and behavior of God's people in the midst of crisis. Though their situation is dire and obvious, God cares more about how his people respond in those moments of crisis. Look how Isaiah says God will respond in verses two and three. 
and yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. There's several layers of irony that we need to unpack here in verses 2 and 3. First, and we shouldn't miss this, the explicit fear created by the situation of, that Judah's in warrants an explicit naming of the God who is to be feared. If I had a first point, it, it, would, it would be this, I suppose, that in the midst of crisis is precisely the place, according to Isaiah, where the people of God need to learn to recognize their God by name so that they can know where to place their trust. Back in verse 1, Isaiah is careful, careful to call God with two different names. He's called the Holy One of Israel and the Lord, or more properly, Yahweh. In Isaiah, God is called the Holy One of Israel more than any other book, books in the Bible combined. It's used to disclose his unique sacredness, his rightful elevation above all other gods and creatures, his incomparable perfection and uncompromising purity. The Holy One of Israel is never unclean, and his holiness is so majestic, the whole earth is full of his glory. The second name, Yahweh was so supremely respected in many Jewish circles that it was forbidden to be read aloud or even pronounced, whether in public or in private. Yahweh is the proper name of the one true God. It expresses all of his omnipotence and immutability, his existence that has been and is and is to come. Yahweh is the name of the one, the one who rules the universe and everything in it. Now, in comparison, when Isaiah calls the chariots many and the horsemen very strong, we are meant to feel somewhat dissatisfied with where Israel, with where Judah, with where God's people have placed their trust. But to make things seem even more embarrassing, Isaiah presents a sharp antithesis in verse 3 between mortals and God. The Egyptians are man not God, and their horses are flesh, not spirit. Now careful, the, the distinction that Isaiah is making, it, it isn't between the evil of the flesh and the goodness of the spirit. On the contrary, as one scholar observes, the word used here, chadam, is the regular word for human beings in their humanness. There's nothing wrong with being flesh, it is just the ordinary stuff of which human beings are made, designed to see God, but in itself perishable like grass. Isaiah doesn't denigrate humanity in hopes of elevating the option of trusting in God. Instead, Isaiah simply recognizes the substance of God, and the Egyptian Calvary becomes suddenly ordinary and unimpressive. To put it another way, trust in God depends not on thinking little of man, but thinking much of God. Here in the midst of intense crisis, Isaiah wants to tell us is precisely the place where the people of God need to learn their God by name so that they can know where to place their trust. 
Church, we cannot miss this. The failure of God's people in Isaiah 31 to trust in Yahweh, it it isn't because they value the wealthiness of Egypt. It isn't because they think a lot of horsepower is sexy. Their failure is that they forget to look for Yahweh. When in verse 1, Isaiah says, Woe to those who do not look to the Holy One of Israel and consult the Lord. The verbs look and consult, they aren't carrying a sense of long petitioning or crying out. Isaiah isn't mad at Israel because they forgot to dress in sackcloth and heap ash on their heads. The verbs plainly understood aren't talking about looking for what Yahweh can give. They're indicting God's people because they just aren't looking and seeing that Yahweh has made himself near and available. Remember, this is Israel we're talking about. They're the people that are defined by all their customs that interact with God's spirit. I mean, their capital city, Jerusalem, it's built around the place that God calls his home, the temple. You, you cannot exist as the people of God in Israel without an awareness of where he is. And, and yet, how easy it is for the people of God to deceive themselves into thinking that they are actively seeking God because they spend time in the buildings that Yahweh calls his home. Maybe this, uh, this illustration will help you, as it helped me. Uh, my wife and I, we live in a fairly, I would, I would consider, small apartment in Vancouver. And uh, just recently, we became aware of a third uh, uninvited guest that's entered into our living space. We call him Mr. Mouse. I don't like Mr. Mouse very much. In fact, uh, you know, the last several months I've been setting up uh, everywhere I can possibly uh, these traps and sticky mats, just hoping to catch Mr. Mouse. You know, but for some reason, every morning we'd wake up, all we'd ever see is evidence of his presence among us, his droppings. One day I come home from the gym and my ears, keenly now attuned to hearing the pain of mice, hear this squeaking sound. I drop everything I have. I throw it on the ground. I go and grab my, my br- the broom, which is going to be my finishing weapon. I run into the kitchen. And guess who's waiting for me? Mr. Mouse. And then it hit me. Most of us look for God the way that I looked for Mr. Mouse. We set up a host of conventional traps, even in our spiritual lives. You know, we go to church, we, we, we put out fleeces, we even put, you know, bait for God on the table. I want that guy with this particular haircut, with that build, and I want it by Friday, Lord. Just expecting Lord to meet, our, our Lord to meet all these, me, these needs. And yet day after day after day, we don't expect to find much because all we ever see is the residue. And then it should suddenly hit us. We should suddenly realize that God, that Yahweh, he's actually the one who's waiting for us to stop running all around his house and leaving feces. 
In fact, if we were willing to just stop and wait with trembling like Mr. Mouse on my sticky mat, we might actually wait long enough to see that our God is near and available to us. Isaiah's not condemning God's people for their inactivity. He's indicting them because the the looking and consulting of God that he requires means that you have to stop moving and start spending time waiting in his presence. People of God, hear this. Let's move on to my second point. Recognizing who God is and that he's near and available to us allows us to understand what he will do. Let's read verses two to three again. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but he will arise against the house of evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. The comfort that, that this often quoted character of God brings us, he will, sweep away, he will not sweep away the righteous with the wicked. Uh, here it fails to provide the people of God comfort when, I, when Isaiah includes them among the house of evildoers or a part of those who work iniquity. The wicked all perish together. Now, we should probably ask at this point, But why does Isaiah call this kind of destruction wise? Well, he explains it to us in verses four and five. For thus Yahweh said to me, for, of course, this, this preposition that is singling, that some sort of explanation is coming. For thus Yahweh said to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, And when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So Yahweh of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill. Like birds hovering, so Yahweh of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect it and deliver it. He will pass over and rescue it. So, so, so what's uh, Isaiah's explanation? It's that Yahweh will not have his people helped by anything other than himself. And, and here's the chilling truth. If, Isaiah is, um, if Israel is crushed by coming Assyria, if, if Egypt and God's people are destroyed together, Yahweh in his wisdom, says Isaiah, is both involved in that destruction and yet to be sought after to bring them through. Yahweh's inevitable wrath, the stretching out of his hand, it's not a picture of divine child abuse. A friend of mine puts it this way, God's wrath is his pure and holy love burning fiercely against anything evil that he finds in his creation. In other words, Yahweh brings disaster because he's committed to protecting his people against anything other than placing their trust in him which will inevitably bring them false hope. John Oswald puts it this way, The Lion of Judah cannot be frightened off by a pack of people shouting and beating pans. You see, in ancient Mesopotamia and Egypt and in Palestinian art, uh, lions, they're often symbolized 
Uh, they're, they're the subjects, part of me, of, of royal hunts. Pharaohs and kings, they would do battle against these fierce creatures to prove their fearlessness and might. But by subduing a lion, a pharaoh identified himself as its master in power and strength. But Pharaoh cannot subdue Yahweh. And in a stroke of irony, Yahweh protects his people by seizing them like a lion seizes his prey before the shepherds can pull them away into false safety. But God is also like a mother bird or birds who protect their nest when predators are near. Yahweh hovers over his people and their city distracting the enemy and guarding them under the covering of his wings. Isaiah describes the protection of of Yahweh with four verbs, protect, deliver, pass over, and rescue. Four, it's this number in, in the ancient world that often symbolizes completion on every side. And here it probably represents that Yahweh will surround his people with sufficient help. But there's more. These four verbs, and especially the third one, Passover, speak of a time when Israel has been in this circumstance before. Or more importantly, they echo a story of when Yahweh has been here before, the Exodus. If you remember uh, back to the Exodus, Israel's in slavery, and though Pharaoh is unwilling to set them free, in Exodus chapter 12, Yahweh says, Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin. And touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of this house until the morning. For Yahweh will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And where he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, Yahweh will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statue for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that Yahweh will give to you as he has promised, you shall keep his service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of Yahweh's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Yahweh's been here before and in their moment of need before, he protects them by passing over. He delivers and rescues them from Egypt's slavery. Now, now you also know that Yahweh's deliverance of his people from Egypt leads them into the desert and to the Red Sea. Pharaoh, probably not getting a lot done without his slaves in Egypt, summons his chariots and his horsemen and pursues them. Israel, stuck now between an angry marching army and a vast Red Sea, lifts up their eyes and fears greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? And and then listen to what they say next. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Are you, are you kidding with me? 
I mean, Israel's just been passed over. They've been, they've been rescued and delivered from slavery. And all they can do is they lift their eyes up is see chariots and horsemen. Sound familiar? Israel forgets to look for Yahweh. But, but look how Yahweh responds. And Moses said to the people, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of Yahweh which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Yahweh will fight for you. And oh, I love this part. And you have only to be silent. <laughs> Yahweh said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. And, and I love the image for us here too as, as we're going through Isaiah. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Pharaoh, his chariots, his horsemen a terrified people of God who want to go back to Egypt and a God who's named by the name of the one who stretches out his hand and passes over. Isaiah 31 is bursting with echoes of the Exodus. But more importantly, and Isaiah wants us not to miss this, the God who protects Israel here in Isaiah 31 He's the same God who always rescues, delivers, and passes over his people. Recognizing who Yahweh is allows us to understand what he will do. But in understanding the character and action of Yahweh, this is our third point, we also begin to recognize the response of a faithful people. Verses six to nine. Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. For in that day everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. And the Assyrian shall fall by a sword, not of man, and a sword, not of man, shall devour him. And he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be put to forced labor. His rock shall pass away in terror, and his officers desert the standard in panic, declares the Lord, whose furnace is in Zion whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. Judah's issues are worse than they thought. As Oswald observes again, deeply revolted here in Isaiah uh, verse 6, deeply revolted is a graphic phrase. Not only have the people churned aside from following God, they've intentionally deepened that churning away. This language hasn't been used in Isaiah since chapter 1, and its intentional use here again for us makes the condition of Israel's increased idolatry seem multiplied in depth and depravity. And yet God invites them to repent. Turn to me. Is God's gracious invitation to the people of Isaiah 31 to return and get right before him. In the midst of crisis, Yahweh has already revealed himself to be a God who protects his people. And now he will show himself to be a God who forgives his people. 
even in the midst of his unstoppable judgment. But there is a cost involved. A true repentance requires the people of God to throw away all that is wicked before the Lord. Especially those idols of precious gold and silver. And in the words of John Calvin, true conversion does not ask the price. But as the people of God return to Yahweh, as they throw away even their most valuable idols, it sets in motion the full extent of Yahweh's vengeance on wicked Assyria. As the grace of God is revealed, the wrath of God is kindled. One scholar, Moiter, he puts it this way, Israel itself cannot escape the threat of its own privileges. It lives indwelt by the God of fiery holiness. But when the Assyrians attacked Zion, they brought themselves within the ambit of that same holy fire. Yahweh shows himself once again to be in solidarity with his repentant people by pouring out his destruction on those who would seek to build their own strongholds of idolatry upon the backs of captive Israel. God's grace is announced in this image for us prior to its, its, its experience. But notice this, what sets it all in motion is the faith-filled, repentant action of his people. In the words of Tom Wright, when all other boundary markers disappear in the great moment of judgment, the people of Yahweh will be marked out by their faith. Faith, as far as these texts is concerned, is not simply to be understood as a single miscellaneous religious quality, virtue, or attribute. It is the distinguishing mark of the true people of Yahweh at the time of crisis. It is one of the things, predictably, that will characterize the return from exile. Recognizing who Yahweh is allows us to understand what he will do, which in turn should teach us how to respond as his faithful people. Now, now whether predictably or not, the people of God in Isaiah 31 don't listen very well to this sermon. Isaiah 30.15 puts it this way. In returning and rest you shall be saved, and quietness and trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. You said, no, we will flee upon horses, therefore you shall flee. And we will ride upon swift steeds, therefore your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one, and, and at the threat of five you shall flee, till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill." Isaiah 30 and 31 show us the unique conditions that Yahweh places on his people in order to experience his abundant grace, repentance, and resting in him. But Isaiah also obviously shows us how difficult it is for the people of God, and I know for us, especially in moments of crisis, to turn to him and wait. So, so how do we make sense of this for ourselves, for our situation here at Central Heights? You know, we, we don't exist in the same circumstance as Aleppo, and our hardest and most intense situations, they don't compare to the predicament facing God's people in Isaiah. And yet, through the person of Jesus, all of us, I would suggest, are invited to consider afresh who our God is, what he has and will do, and how we can respond as a faithful people.
Turn with me quickly to Matthew chapter 23. While you turn there, let me briefly outline the context. Like our passage in Isaiah 31, we find Jesus here in Matthew 23 acting like a prophet and announcing judgment on Israel's bad leadership. Of the 39 verses that we see in chapter 30, uh, in this chapter 23, 36, and we could argue 38 of them, are words that are declaring God's wrath against the scribes and Pharisees. And in exactly the same fashion of Isaiah before him, John introduces the trouble Israel is in with that foreboding word, woe. Seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees. Moreover, and this is extremely important to Matthew, as we saw in Isaiah 31, the intense distress that Jesus will express over Israel's dire situation here is concerning the responses of his people. He says this, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe everything that they tell you, but not the works that they do. For they preach, but do not practice. Let's start reading in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. At this point in the narrative, Jesus is about to turn his eyes to include Israel as a whole in the coming judgment against their bad leadership. Uh, Which, by the way, just as an aside, because I know there's many leaders in this room here who are being tasked with leading God's people, that should cause us to actually pause and realize that our undealt with sin affects both the ship and the community surrounding the ship that we are guiding. Let's move into Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered you, uh, gathered your children together as hens, a hen, as a hen gathers her broad under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's not hard to see that the framework of Matthew's conclusion, it mirrors that of Isaiah 31. In the first 36 verses, Jesus pronounces judgment in the form of woes against Israel's bad leadership decisions. The first half of verse 37 now directly addresses Jerusalem as Isaiah addressed the whole house of evildoers. The whole city has shared in the sins of its leaders. They kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. We're meant also here in Matthew. We're meant also here in Matthew to see what Isaiah described as deepened revolt. Jesus' language, it isn't referring to that one time that Jerusalem killed Yahweh's prophets. He's indicting them for always revolting against God's messengers. Their apostasy has gotten worse. Of course, the most important parallel for us is in the second half of verse 37. There we see the same picture that Isaiah 31 paints for us of Yahweh as a mother bird. Except in Matthew's version, the mother hen is now Jesus, who both longs to protect his people and is himself the the person under whose wings Israel will be saved. 
The irony, of course, is that as Israel continues her deepened revolt of killing God's prophets, they are about to become agents in Yahweh's plan for the renewal of the whole world by killing the last prophet that Yahweh sends them. Jesus, his son. Like in Isaiah 31, the occasion of Israel's sinfulness suddenly becomes the background for God's abundant grace. And Matthew, in in a breathtaking turn of events, foreshadows for us that the looming death of Jesus at the hands of his own people will be like baby chicks denying the protection of their mother's wings during a farmyard fire. Jesus comes ready, ready to give of himself for his people just as a mother hen might be scorched to death by fire while its chicks remain alive and protected under her wings. Jesus comes ready to suffer the fate that hangs over Jerusalem and Israel is unwilling But resting in the shadow of Jesus' wings is the only way to be rescued from this coming devastation. As we saw in Isaiah 31, Israel's revolt deserves judgment. Here in Matthew in verse 38, he presents to us Yahweh's punishment. Your house is left to you desolate. The people of God who haven't the patience to wait for God or the willingness to turn in repentance and hide under his protection find themselves walking around Yahweh's house without Yahweh being home. Jesus is predicting the destruction of the temple, the place of sanctuary for Yahweh and the symbol of God amongst his people. But Jerusalem denies, Jerusalem denies the fullness of Yahweh in the person of Jesus' son. And because of that, the city is about to share in the destruction that God's wrath brings to all nations who would rather fill their homes with precious gold and silver instead of living and dwelt by the God of fiery holiness who melts all of our idols as snow. Matthew's conclusion, and so will be mine, just like Isaiah's, makes our part very clear. Our hope for redemption requires us to throw away every idol our hands have sinfully made and to wait in trembling for God to draw near. But there's one more thing that Matthew wants us not to miss. Verse 38 is a conditional sentence. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say. What Jesus means is that beyond our Isaiah-like prescription of of turning in repentance and, and waiting or looking on Yahweh for his near deliverance, we as the people of God are called to be marked out by our prophetic vocation. We, his church, you, his church, are called to proclaim and to celebrate that Jesus came and still comes to this world as Yahweh, the God who protects Davies and Allison, they put it this way, the text means not when the Messiah comes, his people will bless him, but rather when his people bless him, the Messiah will come. 
Like the song of Moses that sings of the saving acts of Yahweh's exodus, so we, his church, so you, Central Heights, are called again and again to rehearse the mighty victory of Yahweh in the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So how am I saying we apply, how am I saying we apply this to ourselves and to our situation here at Central Heights? I'm saying that as we recognize the fullness of Isaiah's Yahweh and Jesus the Son, we will begin to understand what Jesus has willingly done in taking the fate of sinful Israel and this world upon himself, which in turn will instruct us that to be his faithful people, we are, requ- we are required to turn to Jesus in, in repentance, to wait in his presence for deliverance under the shelter of his wings. And then as as we peek out like little children, out from under the bruised and scorched body that has saved us, we are called to celebrate and praise the name of the Messiah Jesus by rehearsing the gospel story again and again as a sign to this world and to each other that King Jesus is the God who protects. The worship team is going to come and lead us in some celebration of this good news. And why don't don't we, um, with the joy that is set before us, why don't we join them in that? As our prayer team comes um, to the front this morning as well, I'm going to encourage you I'm going to encourage you, if you're sitting there this morning and, 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 and you're aware of the idols that you, you have lofted up sitting in your home, that your hands have sinfully made, I'm going, to, I'm going to encourage you to use this opportunity to throw them away. Let this begin a process for you of refinement. And would you, would you come, join with our prayer team, join with the people beside you, and come in repentance. Come in repentance. And under the covering and protection of Jesus' wings. And then as as I've been just praying for for Central Heights this week, I've just been feeling the sense that God just delights in this church. Delights in his people and, and more than that, he delights to dwell amongst us. And my hope and prayer for for Central Heights is that this church would be marked by the delight that comes from knowing that our God is pleased to dwell here. And then with that joy, that knowledge of the gospel, he also calls us to be sent out to tell again one another about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus (laughs) and to tell the world that Yahweh, the God who protects, is alive. We worship him as king. We know him in the face of Jesus, the son. Let's worship together.